Welcome back to the On the Blue Couch podcast with Kathleen Brennan. This podcast is about any and all things related to therapy. Hi, all. It's Kathleen, and I'm here with Arthur Westinghouse. We're continuing our conversation um, really on the topic of addiction, intervention, and recovery today. So we're really getting into kind of the relapse prevention and understanding it uh, more today. So how relapse occurs prior to an actual physical relapse. And I think you're going to talk about exactly what you mean by that and how it's different from how we think about another part of um, a relapse. But I'm going to introduce you again. Arthur is an interventionist. He's with Westinghouse Intervention and Family Coaching. So their mission is to guide families and individuals living with untreated addiction, substance misuse, mental health, and trauma to healing, well-being, and a genuine higher quality of life. Love your mission, and I will include your website on the blog post. So where should we begin today? I know that we've talked about how addiction is just a broad term, um, as is relapse, but we're moving into the kind of this more, what, is a, what does it look like prior to a relapse, physical relapse occurring? And do we just define that, start by defining it today? what a relapse is. Mm-hmm. You know, on the emotional end, it, that, that's a big one. You know, it's, it's like, you know, a, a lot of times people who are addicted in particular with alcohol, you know, when, when folks wind up with that alcohol use disorder or alcohol addiction, it's not uncommon for that person to almost be sort of like a raw nerve, like they're dealing with some severe anxiety. Mm-hmm. And when they don't, have the alcohol that's what they're left with right so there there's a lot of fear involved there's usually some family dynamics that um you know contribute to the person staying numb with alcohol right so then they suddenly they're sober they get sober they may go to treatment for 30 days uh, if they're lucky enough for their insurance to cover that 30 days of treatment um you know they come home and if the family is not engaged in any level of recovery or making any shift in the dynamics there, the person walks back into that. And what, what is it? It's like an emotional minefield, right? Mm-hmm. So um, all the emotional triggers are there and the person is there thinking, they didn't prepare me for this. I listened to some, some great sound and lectures you know, I may have shared some things that were really uncomfortable for me to share in a group. Mm-hmm. I may have developed a great relationship with my therapist. Mm-hmm. But how do I deal with this? Here Coming back into it. Yeah. How do I deal with this? You know, um, that, that's why we really, you know, I, I'm a stand for, you know, that continuum of care uh, being looked at from the time the person walks into treatment. So. We're, we're looking at relapse prevention from the, the day that that person sets foot into treatment, right? Mm-hmm. What, what's our next step in working collaboratively with the staff at the facility? You know, what's mm-hmm. our next step going to look like? How do we create this and how do we present that to the person early enough so that we can, you know, contribute to help and motivate them to be willing to do that? You know, maybe, uh, in most cases, the person doesn't need to be going home, especially after 30 days of treatment. 
that's not enough time for the, the, the amount of change to transpire for them to actually have what they need to, to maintain their sobriety walking out. So it's almost, it, I mean, really it, within that system, you know, where the, the insurance company is dictating what's happening clinically, right? Uh, in the time frame, it's not enough time for, uh, for the amount of change that needs to happen. Given that that is a typical story that you're kind of describing, that there's the 30-day stay, maybe longer, maybe shorter, what are people's options right. once they step outside that door? You know, the, the treatment center is probably recommending a longer stay because that was, that's what actually works. When I went to treatment in 1990, it, it was, you know, 90 days or six months. Like nobody was talking about 30 days of, of treatment back then. It was like those were the kind of standard amount of times and it's just progressively whittled back. So, you know, if, if the family is able to afford to cover a longer stay in residential, then that's what's um, recommended. I have a case right now where the family couldn't afford a longer stay. The person stayed for 40 some days of treatment. And what we've done is we've combined it with his, his continuum with sober living support group. He's got his AA meetings. He's got his AA sponsor. His therapist is actually doubling up the amount of sessions that he's got. He's living in a, a sober living that actually has a level of accountability and structure, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not just a flop house. Like there's people that are paying attention to what's going on and they're actually engaged in activities to build kind of camaraderie in there with other, other folks that are trying to stay sober. And then, you know, I'm, my role in that is I'm in communication with, you know, other family members, therapists, this individual's therapist, the owner of the sober living, you know, uh, my, my role is to kind of help keep things cohesive and honest. Like, mm -hmm. so, so you can't, you know, one person can't say, well, this one said that. And then everybody's wondering if that's true or not, because I'm actually speaking with everybody. And I'm getting everybody's story so that we, you know, we keep things transparent. So communication is a big deal in this Well, too. it sounds like you're aware of the breakdown in communication. And actually, I'll use the word dysfunction in communication within families where there is substance use and abuse mm -hmm. and addiction. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, this, this particular person, I mean, there is a lot of emotional triggering going on even while this person's at the sober living, right? There's a lot of things coming up. You know, he's working with his therapist. There's things coming up. You know, it's spilling over into conversations with other family members. Um, you know, they're being plugged in with support groups. They're seeing, you know, taking care of their therapy. So we are actually able to still make it work um at a much you know uh, it's you know it's kind of more of your wraparound service as opposed to everything all in one place with the residential treatment so that it is possible with the right professionals doing that you know and and obviously the individual has the willingness to show up and even though they're expressing how uncomfortable everything is and how they're being emotionally triggered 
they're still putting one foot in front of the other. A community of care is really put in place, and that's really important. Um, once someone steps outside of having been at a um, treatment center. Yeah. And then after that, um, is it keeping part of those services in place? What does a step-down process look like? Is that what you guys call it? Yeah, so there, there would be sort of a step-down through that continuum. You know, the traditional term was aftercare. It's like, okay, but that, that indicates that okay, everything, everything happened here at residential and then there's after. It's like, no, this isn't after, this is the beginning, right? When the person steps out of residential treatment, ideally there's been a, a, some level of a foundation built and then we're at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Now we're actually building the house, <laughs> you okay. know, the new house. So, the new house and foundation. Yeah. You know, if, if the next step is sober living with intensive outpatient, ideally at some point, um, you know, it'll be time for that person to go home. And before they go home, we want all the parameters, all the safeguards in place. We want the family to be prepared. There should be some agreed upon that everyone's agreeing to follow through with. We want to create a healthy stage for when that person comes home. And some folks are lucky, fortunate enough that the family is willing to participate in creating that. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, a lot of, a lot of folks don't have that, but when they do, it's, it's really powerful. So we can create that, have those parameters. If alcohol is the big part of the issue, we may have long-term alcohol monitoring where the person does a like a breathalyzer and it goes into a system. There's a schedule when they breathe into that to, create another level of personal accountability, you know, to really guide them to that, that milestone of that first year sober and then kind of beyond. But, you know, when they go home, we want them plugged into a support group. Uh, they should have some form of mentor within the support group. Obviously outpatient therapy is, is good. We don't, we don't want the person to do all this intensive work and then just come home to nothing. Well, and I know that home can look different um, for different people. And that being that some people have their family living in their community. Others may not have their family or even really much of the community where they're going back to. Um, can you speak to what you're aware of might be the difference, the challenges, or actually the pros of either situation? Yeah. I mean, I have, um, I have a family member right now that's actually in treatment um and the reality is is the the family dynamic that this person comes from and, and part of that is part of that family dynamic is not related to my family like you know we have uh, there's like a whole other system that's not even related to me this particular system that this family member is accustomed to and comes from is so toxic that they can't afford to go back mm. to that system. It, it would completely um, undo everything that's been put in place for this person's success. Mm. Right. Um, and um, so what, this particular family member has decided to do 
is to not at, at this point at this stage of their recovery is to not go back to that place geographically to that family system to that dynamic but to stay where they're at engaged in their recovery um, starting to work looking at school looking at building their career right where they're at where they're in in actually this person's in sober living right now so okay. um you know so some of us i think you know need to make the wise choice to not maybe not go home <laughs> okay maybe we need to just move forward and not go back to that um family dynamic that is probably not going to get well anytime soon. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. That that's what I actually chose to do almost 30 years ago. That system was so, um, just not well that, um, I poked my head in briefly for about three months after treatment. Mm -hmm. I almost got drunk because of the level of emotional triggering that was going on and, and mental abuse and, things like that. Um, but you know, the one thing that I did was I plugged right into a support group, mm -hmm. right? When I moved, when I got out of treatment, I plugged right in. I went to, to a meeting every day. I started to meet people. They embraced me. Um, you know, that where I was missing that family support, I was, you know, fortunate and fortunate enough to find that support elsewhere. And I, and I just kind of kept building from there. So some, some people, that's their story. It's like, you know, if I, you know, I may not have that kind of family support, mm -hmm. but I can choose to go where I was taught, you know, to, to plug into a support group of, you know, people that are dealing with the same thing that I'm dealing with, which was, you know, trying to stay off of alcohol and, and drugs and, not do a repeat of, um, you know, other family members' lives, uh, you know, to create a, a new life. And so, you know, plugging in with, with that support group, I was fortunate where they, they didn't allow me to go down that tube. They, I, I actually ran into people that cared. I'm imagining it takes actually a lot of bravery to be able to say, I can't be here with my family. I'm imagining that there's some grief and loss around that, but probably some mm. other positive feelings as well related yeah. to giving yourself permission to yeah. live for you. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I was telling my wife, Diane earlier today that I probably put in from the age of 17 when I went through treatment all the way into my thirties, I um, diligently uh, tried to create something healthy with, um, quite a few family members, very close ones that, um, at the end of it, I just kind of came up empty handed and was really tired and mm -hmm. said, you know, I think I just need to get back to just put my energy into building my life and, you know, um, and let go. It's okay to let go with love, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, interestingly that, you know, I was just kind of knowing that we were doing this podcast today. I was just brushing up on some things so that I, 
at least half sounded like I knew what I was talking about. <laughs> you typically uh, do. I'll just say that. But. <laughs> oh, thanks. Thanks, Kathleen. Uh, you know, and, and one thing that came up was the whole post-acute withdrawal syndrome. And um, interestingly, I was you know, reminded that that could be, that could go, that, that could go as far out as two years from the time somebody gets sober, right? And, and looking, reflecting back, like, you know, when I got out of treatment, that first year out was actually really, really good. Um, there were a lot of just amazing things that transpired. Everything was brand new. Um, I didn't realize, know that life could be like this without alcohol or drugs. Um, it was just, I felt like I was given, you know, a new pair of glasses and new eyes really more than, more so than uh, glasses. I was just given new eyeballs, you know, and, um, and then at year two, a severe depression and anxiety hit me. Like I can't even describe and, and just kind of looking at that, that post acute withdrawal syndrome, which comes in the form of, you know, your emotional, psychological, mental, um, withdrawal and not so much from the the substances but from the underlying things that were actually going on that kind of perpetuated um the life that i was living before i went to treatment mm -hmm. uh it, it was a really really dark time i was actually telling my my wife diane earlier today like you know um from from that second year through um probably there was a probably a good four or five years that were really, really, really difficult. And um, yeah, so. So what would you say, I know it was a longer period of time, were some of the difficulties for you? Well, yeah. Going into year two and three and four. Well, it, I, I felt at points I felt hopeless. I felt helpless. I felt, um, you know, I, I had suicidal thoughts. Um, I just kept showing up and, you know, asking for help. I'm like, I, you know, I'm at a loss. I don't understand what I'm going through. I'm doing everything I can, everything that worked before, but it just doesn't feel like it's working. I'm being as honest as, you know, as I possibly can. I'm being rigorously honest with myself and, and with other people, but, um, you know, I just felt like I was, I was in this dark, dark place. The only thing I did right was I didn't pick up a drink or a drug, which allowed me the ability to move forward. And I think it was around 97. And I think part of it was I was living in like Aurora, Illinois for the oh. first seven years I was sober. I, moved, I went through treatment in Oak Lawn at Crossroads Interventions uh, uh, right at, on the St. Xavier uh, St. Xavier College. And then I moved in with my mother in, in Aurora. And, and I stayed there for seven years. And I probably stayed there way longer than I should have. I, I think that geographical location, I think it was part of the just dark for me. As soon as I moved, as soon as I moved back to Chicago, and I didn't go back to the south side where I grew up, I, I, I closed that door but I moved to the North side and it was just like, you know, just this new, um, 
new land to conquer for me. Yeah, <laughs> it was like, yeah, but it was really fresh. And I met all these people like my age that were, uh, you know, doing sobriety and getting creative and getting active. And, um, you know, uh, yeah, it was, um, it was really refreshing. That was 1997. And there was like this fog lifted. Um, a, a, a mentor of mine named Ray Lawrence, I, you know, just the man saved my life. Um, he, uh, he passed away that year in 97. And I, I just, um, I remember, uh, I just saw him vividly in my mind one day and I could hear his voice as if he was right in the room with me said, you know, I gave this to you for a reason. Uh, you know, my hope is that you'll, um, share it. Well, and sharing it, you are big time. Yeah. I mean, that was 97. That was the beginning. Like there were a lot of just really amazing things that transpired and a really, a lot of really powerful relationships that kind of ensued in my life that you're there's the, you know, all the clinical words that we can use, but it's really the experience and the story that really, I think hit for me and I think can hit for other people as far as what this all means. And I have a better understanding of what post acute withdrawal looks like. It's not just a list of hopelessness and, you know, helplessness and all of that, but Mm. it's an ongoing experience. Yeah. Um, And and that's, that's really the value of the daily healthy practice, you know, um, engaging, you know, doing the, the physical exercise, the meditation, the real, anything that can, you can do that helps to relax your brain, relax your spirit, you know, having a support group, having a support network, um, staying in act, you know, what being aware of who you're spending your time with, who you're talking to, who you're listening to. You don't want to spend your time with people that are complaining constantly, you know, um, but, you know, engaging, I think I was saying, engaging in those exercises, whether it's meditation, yoga, running, cycling, mm-hmm. swimming, you know, lifting weights, what, you know, I mentioned that you used to do kickboxing. <laughs> I am going to tell you, that was so much fun. Like, talk about novelty. I mean, yeah. you always had stuff coming at you and you were always learning something new. It's pretty cool. <laughs> I'll know. just... Yeah, it did sound cool, but I will tell you, it was more fun than cool. So, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you got some belts here and there, you know. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, yeah, you know, um, you know, all those all those pieces really contribute, especially in those first couple of years. Um, you know, for that that person to be able to handle what's coming down the road. Like I said, in my experience, you know, after that first year I was, you know, there was a, there was one experience that I had at uh, six months sober, 90 days out of the 90 day treatment program that I went through where I almost drank. And I, you know, I picked up a payphone and I called for help before I did that. You know, the reason that I picked up the phone and called for help before I went and picked up that drink or drug was because I was dialing that person's number every day. Mm. You know, I mean, he was my mentor, my sponsor dialing his number every day for the last three months or two, three months. So, um, you know, I was actually building that muscle. Right. So when it came down to it, when I needed to, I was like, Oh, that I called, I 
I didn't even have to think about it. I just called them, you know, actually a thought came into my head that clouded out everything else. It just said, Hey, what are you doing? And I said, yeah, what am I doing? <laughs> you know? And, um, uh -huh. you know, so that, you know, th those kind of things are, they all, every little bit helps to contribute to being able to handle that. I think, you know, a lot of folks do go through that post-acute withdrawal syndrome, mm -hmm. you know, and, um, you know, all those, all those practices, all that building up that support network, you know, um, building those muscles of accountability and responsibility contribute to being able to handle the challenges that are coming down the road. You know, I mean, that, that's just kind of like life for most of us. This, this is life. Like we're always in some form of preparation for what's coming down the road. But when you're, you know, when you're dealing with alcohol and drugs, you know, there, there's just some, you know, some, some other adjustments that have to happen there, you know? Well, I think what you're also talking about is the idea that we don't have to do these big things. Like you have to go to the top of a mountaintop to meditate for it to have meaning and for it to have an impact on your life. Like you can wake up in the morning, not check your email and go sit in a chair and do a five minute meditation and have that become part of a habit. Those are the kinds I need of to get I'm back to doing about. that. <laughs> I, I need to, because I've been um, waking up and it'll start with looking at a news brief. And the next thing I know, my head's in Facebook. I'm like, I haven't even woken up yet. How did I get here? How did I get here? I don't want to meditate. I just want to keep reading this stuff, you know, uh -huh. stoking my anger. It's like this addiction. You know, I mean, you get addicted to the feelings that you're getting from looking at it. You know, uh -huh. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, but it, when, when I should have just went and sat in a chair and, and been quiet for a minute. <laughs> right. You know. So I know that you and I have talked about, and I'm interested in this. I, I love this terminology, which is maintaining the power of choice. This kind of sounds like we're kind of moving into that is how do, how does one think about maintaining the power of choice? Well, when, yeah, when it comes to addiction specifically, it's like um, once, I've, once I've not put the substance in my body or not engaged in the addictive behavior for a period of time, the power of choice comes back, right? So I, I, I get that. My brain is no longer hijacked by the substance, right? So um, if I am triggered emotionally or mentally by something, I should have the ability to make a wise decision to take a look at it, feel it, experience it, call and tell somebody about it, show up to my support group, not sit there quietly, but actually spit it out on the table, right? Mm -hmm. And, and one, once it comes out of my mouth, whatever that is that's triggered me, it loses its power and what I get to do is maintain my power of choice. I get to maintain the power, you know, like that. Um, I, I don't have to pick up a drink. I don't have to pick up a drug. Um, you know, as long as I continue to do these, these things, as long as I continue to, to live my life in such a way. And, you know, when, when somebody's getting into recovery, they say, you know, like, you know, are you willing to change everything? 
because mm-hmm. it's all connected. It's not like, oh, my life was perfectly normal except for this. Uh, you know, everything's connected. There's all these pieces that, that connect to the puzzle. Um, so, so, yeah, it's, you know, as long as I maintain the, you know, what I've been doing, then I get to keep that power of choice. As soon as I pick up that, that drink or a drug it's taken from me, my brain winds up getting hijacked again. Mm-hmm. And once you know. it gets hijacked, what does it look like? Well, um, you know, early on. So back when I was 17, 18 years, friends that I had that were quote chronic relapsers, right? So they, you know, they would show up to the meetings, they would go out, they would drink, they would come back every week, every other week. Yeah, I drink again. Yeah, I drink again. They, you know, people would sit around um, in, in judgment and say, well, you know, you just haven't got it yet. Well, I mean, whatever quote it is, right? You, you're just not there. You just haven't hit your bottom, you know? A lot of times I was the last person to be choose to be nice to this person. <laughs> so people would always call me. They liked to drunk dial me in the middle of the night. They thought I was this young, nice guy that was going to be easy on them. You know, I'd say, well, you're drunk. The best thing I could offer you is to get you to detox. Would you like to go to detox? And they'd say, yeah. And so I'd show up in my 79 Camaro with my buddy Ian uh, and we would drive in the middle of the night to either Sharon Hoffman Estates or South Suburban down in, I think they were in Chicago Heights or close to Chicago Heights. Those were the two that would take people in the middle of the night with no money and no insurance for detox. And, um, you know, so they would, you know, they would, they would wind up there. I mean, that, that's the best thing that I could offer when somebody was in the grips of it still like, Hey, I could get you to detox. And if you go through detox, then, you know, there's a chance that you could get to the power, you know, back to having the power of choice again. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, right now you're drunk. You can't, you're not thinking straight for some reason. You're, you're actually willing to, to go to detox. Most of the time I'd hear the person hitchhiked back home or, whatever the next day so the the other part is you know when when the person's in that and they're not willing to get help that's where your your interventions come in you know Mm -hmm. where the family comes together and says okay your brain's hijacked we're not willing to wait for something irreversible to happen Mm -hmm. um you know for you to to start thinking straight um we're actually going to help try to prevent that from happening. So we're going to get together and offer you some help and let you know, we're not going to help you stay drunk or high anymore. You know, I've thought of relapse in the past is it's like an either or either you're sober or you relapsed and you're using. And I think you've educated me on the idea that it's actually a gradual process. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, I think it's really interesting and helpful. I used to, when I worked at the prison, we would do a lot of CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, when I first walked in, they were doing these thought reports up on the wall, on the board, and they would write it out and people would ask questions and things like that. You know, they would basically come up with an event, uh, what their first three thoughts were when the event happened, what their feelings were 
we would get into core beliefs, what, you know, try to dig into what their core beliefs were. And ultimately the, um, the negative action and the negative outcome, and then go over to the other side and hypothetically say, okay, what are three different thoughts you could have had? What feeling do you think you would have had with these three other thoughts around the event? Mm-hmm. What core belief would have actually helped a positive action mm-hmm. and what positive outcome could, could we have actually created through the, you know, change your thoughts, change your feelings, change your actions, that kind of thing. So I thought that's really boring. They're just doing that up on the board. So I would actually lay out the different stages of that on the floor on sheets of paper in the middle of the group. And these guys would walk through, they would walk, they actually physically walk through the stages of that. Uh, and I, I can't tell you how many light bulbs I saw go off, you know, or come on <laughs> mm-hmm. in, in the middle of that, you know, in, in the groups actually asking them respectful questions and trying to guide them along. Um, you know, so uh, that, that being said, you know, as I'm, you know, preparing for a relapse that I don't necessarily know is coming yet, right? Um, There's certain thoughts that I get that precede that, you know, there's certain emotional triggers and I need to, I need to identify what those actually are, right? What thoughts come, what emotional triggers, you know, related to whatever relationships, if I'm experiencing those and I'm just keeping them to myself and I'm not sharing those, with anybody, what happens is I start to move toward the actual physical relapse and ultimately I, I wind up picking up or the person winds up picking up, you know, the substance and then obviously the brain's hijacked again and the whole cycle continues and everything gets progressively worse. The progression of recovery is I get these triggers, I get these emotional triggers, I get these mental, uh, you know, triggers and I show up to my support group or I reach out to a close friend or a mentor and I share with them what I'm thinking. I share with them what I'm feeling. They feed back to me. They share their experience. I get perspective. I get new thoughts. Once you're talking to people and then you get new ideas, new information, um, new experience. When I'm sharing what I think nobody else is experiencing and I realize that other people do experience that, you know, they're sharing their experience with me. I'm getting new perspective. I'm feeling better. My recovery is progressing. I'm moving away from the possibility of a relapse. So I have a question for you about emotional triggers. Can you speak to a few examples of that, what that might look like? Before I ever picked up a drink, I had uh, like existence shame. Okay. Uh, I didn't think I had a right to be here. I got out of that 90 day treatment and I moved in with a family member that really contributed to that existence shame. You know, it it was truly an emotional minefield um, back in the position of the person who's responsible for everything that everybody is feeling in the house. Uh, That was extremely triggering for me when I was maybe repeatedly told like what you're doing is, is not right, you know, or my, my thoughts and my actions were trying to be controlled by somebody else. 
I was extremely triggered. I was, I was triggered in such a way that as a 17 year old, I did not understand what I was experiencing, but it, it was really, you know, it, it didn't feel good. And, and a lot of people that that's, you know, they don't necessarily have the emotional literacy quite yet to say, well, you know, I'm, I'm feeling overwhelmed. I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling angry. I'm feeling rageful. I'm feeling, you know, that I remember, you know, when I, I told you that two year mark hit, you know, I wound up going to see a counselor. She put this big, you know, emotion chart in front of me. And I just looked at it blankly, like, uh, how does that help me? <laughs> <You know? laughs> what is this list? Are we all? But looking back, I know where she was going yeah. with it. I just wasn't there. The time. Mm -hmm. I I wasn't there. You know. Um, so I I think. You know, for somebody to to build emotional literacy around what they're actually feeling, you know, not I'm feeling that what you're doing is making me mad. No, I'm feeling mad, right? <laughs> you know, your action it, is yeah. not a feeling, right? <laughs> you know, but, uh, you know, in response to your action, these are the thoughts that are coming, which are, I need to get out of here. Mm -hmm. You know, I need to get out of here. This is really uncomfortable. I don't like this. Well, and you had sent me something just on things to think about like relapse prevention and that sort of thing. And one was becoming comfortable with being uncomfortable was one of the mm. main points that they made. And you're kind of talking about. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and that's, you know, er, early on in, in recovery, I mean, traditionally with 12-step, you know, they'll say, well, you know, what'll, what'll always save the day is going to do something for somebody else. I get out of myself. I go and do something good for somebody else. That's great, especially when you don't necessarily, you haven't developed the skill sets to be able to cope with these really uncomfortable things. Yeah, it is good to have smart feet, get out of the house, go reach mm -hmm. out to somebody, you know, do something nice, you know, go to a soup kitchen, but volunteer, do something. Um, you know, if you're an alcoholic, talk to another alcoholic you know, what, whatever that looks like, um, that works for a certain period of time. And then you actually have to dig into this uncomfortable thing and you have to start to learn how to be with the, uh, with the discomfort that you're experiencing and how to actually get through that. The sad part is a lot of people wind up relapsing because what do they, they call it like traditionally the two-step thing. Like, They've done the first step. They've admitted powerless and unmanageability, and then they've gone on to save the world. They missed all the meat in the middle, all the cleaning up uh, their their life and the the wreckage of their past and and stuff like that. Um, that's where you actually find you can actually be in the discomfort, and it's safe, and you you can get through it. You know, um, there's a little hand holding that goes on there. You definitely need guidance right? People that just don't go and do that alone on their own. So there's, there's that concept of asking for help and then accepting the help that's being offered to. Mm -hmm. you know. Well, and I think what you're also talking about is this isn't just a year or two years. This is really a long haul for people. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a practice. Like anything, it's, yeah. it's a life, it's a lifelong practice. Like, you know, my, my 
one of my first mentors, Jimbo, uh, my, my lifelong friend and brother. He's, he's a trim carpenter, right? He's very talented. He's awesome. Very lovable. Um, he started by saying, I'm going to make some suggestions. And if you take them, uh, great. If you're not willing to take them, then I'm probably no use to you. And I thought, well, I want you to be used <laughs> abused to me. I just asked you for help, you know? <laughs> so I, I, I think I made the decision then to do that. And then there was, um, they have like in the 12 steps, they had the, the, they have the third step, you know, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand God, you know, Jimbo, what do they mean by that? What, what exact, you know, what, a, I, I don't understand fully. Can you tell me about that? Oh, well, it's easy. You just turn it over. Um, and then you keep practicing turning it over, quote it, you keep turning it over because you're going to keep taking it back. So you just keep practicing turning it over. Mm-hmm. So this was a 28 year old guy in 1991 mm-hmm. with less than a year sober that taught me that the, 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 you know, the message was, this is a practice. You're not going to do it perfectly. So you keep practicing whether that looks like the third step example that I just gave or, you know, mm-hmm. something else. Um, so it, yeah, it is, it is a, a practice and there should be a progress, a progression to that. It's like, you know, I don't know about you, but I get bored easy with things. So I have to continue to keep kind of building on it and making things interesting and challenging myself and, you know, growing in my life. I don't, I'm not one that treads water comfortably. I don't like treading water. You know? mm-hmm. um, well, and I was going to actually wanted to ask you about as far as the boredom, which is such a, can be such a part of what we're all going through in more isolation right now. Um, you know, I'm looking at some of the things that people run into that can lead to more of a relapse, which is people think that they're beyond the basics. Like it's gotten boring. They've kind of hit a wall. Um, Mm -hmm. And so what are some of your recommendations for when people hit boredom where it's life is very quiet and uneventful? Right. I I was always taught, um, you know, move a muscle, change a thought, right? So Mm -hmm. if I'm bored, if my brain's starting to go, if I'm not sure where to start, I can start with a walk. I can start by cleaning the house. I can, um, you know, start by doing something creative that I enjoy. If I don't know what I enjoy creatively, I could start trying some things, right? You know, I may want to try something that I haven't tried before. Um, you know, uh, and you know, but yeah, at at the end of the day, if, if, you know, if I know there are things that I enjoy, but I'm just not motivated to get started, Mm -hmm. um, going for a walk is a, is just a great go-to, you know, Mm -hmm. When, when I go for a walk, and, and that was part of when I shared about, you know, the last time I came that close to a drink, 90 days out of that treatment center was, before, you know, before I got to where I was headed to pick up that drink, I had a walk in front of me, and um, 
I mean, I was on foot. I got out of a car on the highway right by my old neighborhood, right? Mm -hmm. I just happened to, that's happened to be where it, where it all went down. And um, actually a squad car picked me up and brought me closer to the ramp uh, to get me off of the highway. <laughs> and, um, but I still had a walk to go. So that walk allowed, you know, allowed for that voice to come in and say, hey, what are you doing? If I didn't have that walk, I don't know if there would have been time enough for that to, to happen. So there's a lot of power in a walk, you know. Um, well, it's like coming back to yourself in a way. What we say is yeah. like getting grounded, um, being yeah. connected to the earth, the ground. Yeah, I mean, this stuff is not rocket science. It, it's, it's really not rocket science. There's no riddle about why the person doesn't get, quote, it. There is no it. All of it is right here. This is it. Whatever I choose to do today is it. Mm. You know, in, 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 in the 12 step rooms, there's a bit of dogma that happens that it's almost like everyone thinks that they hold the keys to the goalpost and they're going to keep pulling it from the, well, you're just not ready yet. I've got the keys. You're just not, that's, that's not true. That's an untruth, right? Mm -hmm. This is it right here. You know, my sobriety and my recovery and what that looks like, it's all right here. It's what I choose to create with that today. That's it. Whether I'm sober one day or 30 years, it's what I choose to create with that today. You know, so, you know, personally, I was slow moving this morning. I got wrapped up with social media. I allowed it to hijack my brain. <laughs> I managed to get past that mm -hmm. and find my way to, um, to my yoga, to my meditation, to my breakfast, got to the office, realized I didn't get enough meditation in. Mm -hmm. I set two timers, one for the first half of it where I shift gears and one for the last uh, to get me to the last half. I did my 30, a 30 minute meditation when I got here. Um, I had a uh, call with a client, had a call with a therapist. I, you know, got productive. I, I did all that and my motivation to, to engage in that wasn't so I could stay sober today. Wasn't so I could maintain my recovery today. It was my real motive was like, okay, I need to show up and I need to be a hundred percent with who I'm working with. Who's, you know, putting their trust in me as a, as a colleague with the therapist, as a, you know, a family recovery coach with the client. And, um, that's important to me, you know, so I have ideals. I have ideals that I've built through, you know, the life that I've chosen to live and, and those didn't come overnight. You know, those are, those are built over a period of time. Um, so. Hey, yeah. Does that make sense? Am I making oh, any sense at all? You make a ton of sense. <laughs> I'm just sitting here taking it all in, thinking how powerful it is what you just said. So. I mean, it's, it's what I've lived. It's my experience. That's what I know best. Um, I do have a lot of experience working with other people and seeing, you know, the results of healthy practice. You know, sometimes uh, in, in recovery, in the recovery process, through residential treatment or whatever that looks like, a lot of seeds are planted. You know, the 
what I've been hearing since I went through treatment in 1990 is, you know, we can plant the seeds, but we don't get to di dictate how or when they grow, mm -hmm. but we can do our best to nurture that. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it, not much has changed really, you know, uh, our brains are probably, you know, have more access to a lot more information, more than we can actually handle at one time usually. But, uh, the basic, know. the basic concepts are still really the same. Like, you know, when somebody goes through residential treatment, they may get emotionally triggered, decide to get to the place of acting out on that. They may choose to relapse. And, um, you know, what I, one situation recently was the, you know, the person chose to relapse and within a couple of days, they bounced right back to the next step that was prepared for them in part because they spent that amount of time in residential, those seeds were planted. There were still people involved that cared, that were guiding this, that were able to actually guide us back on track before mm -hmm. we, um, before we wound up in, um, in big trouble. So. Mm -hmm. Well, that it doesn't have to be a catastrophe, that it doesn't right. have to be right. a spiral. It can actually be, yeah. okay, we're coming back to this right now. And, no, and nobody shame the person. It's like, you know, oh, you got to start, you got to start your day count over. No, it's like, no, we're getting on with it. You know, mm -hmm. there is no starting over. You know, that's another one of these dogma mm -hmm. points like, you know, well, you just got to start over now. It's like, no, it, you know, especially somebody's, you know, a lot of times you, you see people with 20 plus years sober going and relapse um, in part because there may have been some reservation or some things that they were holding on to or some things that they kept sidestepping working through, mm -hmm. um, you know, a, a lot of times around family of origin stuff. And, um, I mean, going and helping the next alcoholic when you've got stuff like that to deal with will only take you so far, you know, but so where was I going with that? Um, we well, don't start back at zero. That's just not, yeah. You've so something, so you've that, something. yeah. So that yeah. person, you know, that, that person doesn't go and start back at zero no, they've still got all that life experience that has value that contributes to where they are now, right? Mm -hmm. What I can say is, is there's a, a level of humility that comes with, you know, stepping back into their recovery. They're definitely not stepping back in the same person that they were before they had that relapse. There may have been some ego deflation through that probably necessary, necessary ego deflation. Um, but no, that, that person still has a lot of experience that can be, um, useful to somebody else. You know, they now have the experience of relapsing after 20 years and they can help somebody else who may have gone, just gone through the same thing. And I, and hopefully they're going to get on to working through the stuff that, they were sidestepping for all that time. Mm -hmm. So we're about at that time. And um, is there anything else you want to speak to that we haven't today that you think would be important? Is there something you want to sum up? For um, just that, you know, re, you know, with, with 
somebody who's engaged or engaging in recovery and new recovery and old recovery and somewhere in the middle of recovery, whatever that looks like, um, you know, relapse is optional. It's not necessary. It's also not um, something to shame yourself over. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it is an opportunity to learn to say, okay, I can reflect back. I can, I can learn something from this X, Y, and Z were what happened leading up to it. Mm-hmm. And I can learn from that and move forward and, and really just get on with my recovery, get on with my life. I don't have to live back there. It's not like a black mark, like, oh, you had all these relapses. You're a quote, chronic relapser. Get rid of these labels, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, the good, healthy life is really available to all of us, no matter what we've been through or what we're currently going through. Um, you know, we, we can choose to, you know, to, to grab onto the lifelines that are there. Um, there's always lifelines that are there, especially if there's a level of willingness. Like if, if I, if I've had enough, if I've decided that I don't want any more of this life that I've been living mm-hmm. and I take a minute to look around, uh, like, like I told that family member who's currently in treatment on our way to treatment, I said, look, I said, as long as you're willing and you continue to ask people for help, mm-hmm. they will continue to show up and offer you help. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's been the experience with this family member over the last four months or so, you know, and they've actually gone through and beyond and passed a lot of the stumbling blocks that perpetually brought them into relapse in the past, you know, sitting in the discomfort, you know, and, you know, I've, I haven't played too, I've I've been an active role in talking to the therapist every week, but kind of hands off with the family member. I've, I've allowed that person to build their recovery and own their recovery. I don't have to, I don't have to control that. I can allow that to be theirs, you know? Anyway, I, I hope any of that's useful or helpful. That's probably all I've got. It's <laughs> a lot of good stuff. Thank you. Yeah. Always great catching up with you. Always good catching up. I'll see you next time. Sounds good. Thanks. Thank you for joining us today on The Blue Couch. On The Blue Couch is hosted by Kathleen Brennan, a psychotherapist specializing in trauma, anxiety, complex PTSD, and basically any form of loss or other life transitions. You can learn more about Kathleen and her practice at KathleenRBrennan.com. Check out her blog or follow Kathleen R. Brennan on Medium. Music for the podcast is the song Piano Hope by KB. This podcast is edited by Popped Collar Productions, a company specializing in creating innovative solutions through podcasting. Learn more at poppedcollar.net. Please share this show with others and hop onto Apple Podcasts or whatever your podcatcher of choice is and give us a good review. It helps others to find the show. We will be back soon to explore new adventures and new innovations in therapy right here on The Blue Couch.